Welcome back to the recording room. Today we are very happy to have uh, Mr. James Ehrlich, resident entrepreneur and lecturer at Stanford University with us today on the show. Today, uh, the main topic will be about uh, Regen Villages, uh, the company Sustainable Living uh, that Mr. Ehrlich is founding and directing. So welcome, Mr. Ehrlich. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. Uh, well, now, uh, before we get into the topic of Regen Villages, I know you have a very interesting background. So, for instance, I heard you were designing video games in Silicon Valley before going into sustainable living. So could you explain how did your paradigm shift from video games to environment? Yeah, so um, I grew up, to get the context, you know, flow kind of correct there, I grew up actually in New York and did my undergrad at New York University and it was a mix of uh, computer science and, and media. So there was already uh, uh, an interest I had from, from a young age in the early Atari arcade games and, and, and video games. And when those uh, platforms started to come to, to cartridge games and homes, I started to get really excited about that industry and about how I could get involved in that. So after my, my undergrad, I moved to to Northern California and started doing some some work doing game design um, contract you know for Sega Nintendo Atari and um, then started my own company in the early 1990s um, doing both game design but also doing tools for special effects for, for motion pictures and doing some interesting work with like, George Lucas and those folks and and really what happened was because I had moved to almost, I'd say, the countryside, uh, north of the Golden Gate Bridge. So it was north of Silicon Valley um, by, you know, maybe you know, half an hour or so from, from the Golden Gate, from, from San Francisco proper. But this part of what's called Western Marin is, is um, you know, you're, you're just kind of bridging next to horse and, and cattle and small plot family farm country. So I, I um, just started becoming friends with, with these small plot family farmers who were growing these very beautiful, very delicious artisanal ingredients. And, and I, I got just really excited about this whole idea of, of um, symbiosis in nature. So that this, this kind of farming they were doing was called biodynamic, and, uh, which goes you know, several steps beyond organic. So it has a lot to do with the work of Rudolf Steiner from the early 1900s. Um, and, and also, you know, these folks were... Either they were living in 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 the Bucky Fuller domes, or they were you know involved you know being involved in these sort of Bucky Fuller type communities, and um, and so you know I was I was kind of bombarded early on in this by by both of the the farm to table communities and you know the um, the sort of resiliency in the built environment where these people were cobbling together the state of the art back then in passive home. Uh, typologies and and low bore geothermal and and biomass biogas and you know they were experimenting with early photovoltaic panels and and all these different pieces coming together that they were making work these systems didn't talk to each other but they they worked uh, individually cobbled together and um, and what that meant was that these were communities neighborhoods that were capable of generating their own power in case of some kind of power outage. They were capable of 
generating and and harvesting clean water and and digesting you know their waste into resources, and also that they were able to to generate a a pretty significant amount of of food and and, and nutritional input in a very small footprint you know around their around their homes. So I was impacted by that. That's that's what really struck me. It was these incredible farm to table meals, sitting with people, just feeling healthy, feeling happy. Uh, great laughter, great conversations. And so I started to do this case study research about the work of Rudolf Steiner and Buckminster Fuller and these other lovely folks from Australia, uh, Bill Mollison on permaculture. And and as I was started to film the interviews with these farmers and, and track where the food was going, that actually turned into a popular television cooking show, uh, TV show that uh, that I produced and directed. Um, originally it was called Organic Living. We had a sister TV show called Hippie Gourmet, kind of edgy. Um, and it really just was it was a it was a labor of love. It was just something doing on the side of my of my software company. But eventually that took hold and became a very popular TV series. We hit, we reached about 35 million homes a week on national public television and had a best-selling companion cookbook that I co-authored on Hachette. But the stories in the book itself and the show itself was also about these, you know, in-between stories of resiliency in the built environment. And so when I came to Stanford in 2012, I had already, you know, roughly 15 years experience, you know, in this, in this area of case study research of organic, biodynamic and self-sustaining uh, neighborhoods. And so I joined the solar decathlon competition. Uh, at Stanford, and that really was a really interesting competition, sponsored initially by the U.S. Department of Energy. Who could build the most energy-positive home? And the competition was basically: you design and flat pack a home, you send it to some location around the world, designated location where the competition is going to be held. The house gets built, and then um, the, there's these judges, and they they judge the 20 homes. But part of the competition also is that the house, when it's finished, has to be deconstructed, sent back to each campus where it came from, built up again, and then actually become a real house. So you couldn't, it wasn't a Hollywood set. It had to be a very real house, a really very real structure. But when I came into this research, uh, the first thing I said to the professors was, it occurs to me that a smart house inside of a dumb neighborhood doesn't make much sense. And, and I was really blessed to be involved you know, with professors you know, from the Center for Design Research and School of Mechanical Engineering at Stanford. And they all just sort of leaned in and they said, okay, we love this idea, this thought process that you're going in. So we, we think you should make this, you know, kind of your, your thesis, your research initiative. So um, part of it, of course, was being done, you know, through the solar decathlon, through the built environment. But there was another part of it that I had an interest in that I self-funded and I did off campus because I'm an entrepreneur. Right, so I, I understood the rules, regulations, the permutations in dealing with licensing and tech, especially dealing with universities. And so I, I self-funded some research off campus, and, and we started really looking carefully at at sort of uh, coding and uh, a software platform that could model a natural symbiosis and be able to actually then interface with and integrate these previously siloed components that I mentioned before and create a modern eco-village interpretation that could be designed by software 
and then managed by software. So that's the, the long story of me growing up in New York, moving out to California, having software company going into research and then bringing that research forward through Stanford. And in 2016, um, we founded a Dutch holding company, so a for-profit impact company uh, focusing on asset-backed land development, but married with software and tech. Okay, so come uh, a bit before the eco-villagers, I want to talk about a, a bit more about the cooking show because I think uh, in a recent interview, you said that uh, food allowed people to overcome their barriers such as socioeconomic or their cultural barriers. So can you explain how your experience with food uh, during your cooking show, which reached, I think, 35 million uh, viewers, as you said, um, how did that impact your later vision with uh, region villages and your actions with it? Well, um, I mean, I was, I was, like I said, I was really lucky to grow up in, in, in New York City and be blessed to be surrounded by, I mean, just about every culture on earth in terms of cuisine, right? So it's a really thankful place to be, especially if you have some money and resources. You know, you can, you can have pretty much whatever food you want delivered, yes. you know, at three in the morning. You know, so that, it's that kind of city. But it, it, specifically, the farm-to-table power uh, an impact on me was was something I was really trying to to understand better and better because I, what I felt was that there was something more going on than just the fact that the food was was fresh, you know, right from you know harvested right in front of us. Um, and so, so to me, there's there's this whole idea about bioavailability of nutrition. In other words, that you know when you harvest something. And you put it on the back of a truck, and then it goes to a, a warehouse, and then it goes to packaging, and it goes to retail. And you know, by the time you eat that tomato, it doesn't taste like a tomato anymore, or smell like a tomato anymore. It's gone through so much kilometers and processing that it it's lost its vibrance. And we think, I think, to a certain extent, some of its nutritional value or bioavailability, at least. So I was I was really curious about that, but then. Moreover, what I really felt was that these communities and these, these, these farm-to-table experiences were that it didn't matter if you didn't speak the same language as people. When you harvested something and you brought something to the kitchen and you were you know, together and you were chopping things and you were you know, putting things into, into a pot and stirring things up and the spices and the ingredients were going in, that you were, you, you were imparting these stories these stories of their ancestors, these stories of their culture, of their upbringing. And, and so when you, when you, you know, it's all visceral, of course, right? You're smelling it, you're, you're tasting it, you're feeling it. And so, like I said, even if you didn't speak the same language, you could taste something and smile and laugh and, and engage and speak the language or the, the, the grand translator was actually food in that way. I've also experienced in my travels around the world these these really beautiful eco-village communities, collaboratives, co-housing, intentional agri-hoods, if you will, where there's a lot of different people uh, that are diverse, different socioeconomic level, cultural, ethnic, race, religions. Um, but at the long farm table meal, everybody just felt the same, equal and 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 enjoying each other's company kids were running around 
seniors were doing what they're doing, being with the kids and others. The village mentality is 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 vibrant and powerful, and and it, it sort of buzzes with the sense of belonging, which is something we are have completely dissociated ourselves from as a species, right? Living in big cities, separate from our nature, separate from each other. This idea of like assisted living and senior living, etc. That that's really basically purgatory. So what it does is communicates to to, to youth uh, like yourself and people younger that when you get to a certain age, you're no longer needed, you're no longer wanted, you get pushed out, right? And and the truth is that that the best cultures, the best uh, communities are based on this diversity of, of age. So babies and, and kids and teenagers and young adults and couples and, 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 and um, retirees and even people you know, then getting into hospice care and, and passing away in the community, right? That there's, you live in this story arc of life where you always feel at home and you're always welcome. So that's where the food ties it all together from our perspective. And it's also similar to this blue zone research, which parallels my research around the world, where people are living to like 110 years old based on what they're eating and, and living in these communities. Okay, so you think that food is really some uh, appealing to you like a uh, funda uh, fundamental nature of the human being, something that uh, ties everyone together? Right, exactly. Okay. Um, so, um, in one of your previous interviews, you used the term uh, compassionism to describe your philosophy. So, do you think your uh, your actions with food and how uh, region villages produce food is um, is embodying this uh, your philosophy of compassionism? Yeah. So, so what's interesting is that that the body of of our you know Stanford research you know, sort of started in like I mentioned in the school of mechanical engineering and the Center for Design Research at Stanford on the resiliency in the built environment. So it shows the nuts and bolts to like build this kind of community, putting these pieces together infrastructure-wise. But then I transitioned and I went over to the School of Medicine at Stanford and initially was at the Center for Compassion, Altruism, Research and Education under Dr. James Doty and was there for about a year and a half, you know, progressing this idea um, that how you live and where you live you know, can improve healthy outcomes, right? And and that 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 there can be and must be a a kind of additional part of a spreadsheet that focuses on compassion, altruism, and empathy in design thinking, right? That when you do that, there there are proven healthy outcome results that can happen from that. So that's where this and I, I had my experiences, you know, with Dr. Doty even before I came to Stanford because we had become friends and had done some work together previously when I was designing some video games around around this interesting topic of compassion, altruism, and empathy for pro-social, triggering pro-social behaviors um, and and oxytocin release and other kinds of things. So um, so it's always been interesting and important for me to to have that as part of my influence especially when you're looking at like indigenous first nations wisdom and wanting to design communities around natural resource flows 
that you you know you want to include those voices and and the, and the, the cultural aspects of those places that requires empathy that requires compassion that requires thinking differently than traditional real estate development or software development and then uh, and then basically in 2019 and to, to now I moved over to the Stanford Flourishing Project, which is also in the School of Medicine, but it's under the Health and Human Performance umbrella. And under Dr. Neil Chima, Stanford Flourishing Project is really focusing on what are the circumstances for, uh, for creating flourishing, you know, both you know, human, species, planetary, environmental, et cetera. Where Regen Village's research is 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 germane to to the Maslow of hierarchical needs. Yeah. That you know, if you have dignified housing that's energy positive and clean water, clean food, you know, clean uh, waste to resource management, hygiene, and you, you're answering for those basic human needs, then you open up the opportunity space for what it means to flourish and and to feel like you're surrounded by abundant surplus. So um, these are, these are you know, very um, material kinds of research initiatives that, that can be connected with, whether it's functional MRI or, 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 or uh, you know, just even statistical burden reduction you know, on, on healthcare systems, that, that there's you know, good science behind this, in other words, of how you can actually create and improve you know, flourishing. And, and that's where there's this wonderful connection now between this bed of research and this understanding and regenerative, resilient infrastructure and permaculture design thinking. So it's not squishy science, in other words. It's really, really pretty well rooted in, you know, when you improve an ecosystem, these are the, you know, Benefits. these are the, the, the benefactors of that, exactly. Okay, perfect. Understood. Uh, then let's move on to the topic of improving the environment and uh, eco villages. So first of all, as uh, so, some very basic question for like all our listeners is: as a founder, what was your vision for region villages? What was the main uh, motivator for you to pursue this project? Well, um, to be perfectly honest, I had thought that, mistakenly so that we had this under control, meaning planetary boundaries and um, being able to, to, to see from my personal experiences, these eco-villages, intentional communities, organic biodynamic farms, just, you know, during the process of producing our TV show, the word organic, literally market tested initially in the year 2000 as um, manure and compost, if you can imagine. And just a few years later, we like to think we were part of that kind of positive messaging, but about 2004 or so, 2005, the word organic had completely transitioned to meaning glee, you know, uh, clean and green and, um, and worth 40% more at the supermarket, <laughs> yes. right? Uh, and that's a sea change in just four years. Right. So, um, so, you know, we thought, well, okay, we're, you know, things are going in the right direction. Of course, you're in a bubble because you surround yourself with these like-minded people, which is what we had, had done. But what was, was, was the epiphany for me was that my son was born in 2010 
And that was, you know, right at the moment that the BP oil disaster happened in, um, in the Gulf of Mexico. And that was, you know, pretty disastrous, catastrophic, uh, you know, from our menu perspective, you know, I used to love to, to buy all kinds of seafood from, from this part of, of the world, you know, from this ecosystem. And so, okay, we realized, okay, we can't do that now for some period of time. And I don't know when that is going to feel comfortable again for that to be the case. Um, and then on the heels of that in 2011, Fukushima happened. And, and of course there was, you know, tremendous you know, fear and anxiety over um, the release and what that was going to mean, you know, both, you know, um, airborne isotopes and, and, and seaborne, you know, isotopes, et cetera. And, um, and, you know, when you, when you're looking in the eyes of a young child who's a year, year and a half, two years old, all of a sudden the gravity on your shoulders becomes untenable. You just, there's, you just have to do something, isn't it? So, um, and I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I'm accepted this role at Stanford. I come in, you know, I have, you know, this background both in software and tech and being an entrepreneur and now this case study research on how these communities can get, you know, how we can live in safety with, within um, natural boundaries, you know, and in, at the neighborhood scale, not city scale, right? Not to say that we can't do retrofits for cities, but that, that to start with, to look at the near suburban, peri-urban, you know, especially the sprawl that's happening and creating new suburbs, that we could create a new suburban model that is what's called an agri-hood, right? And, and have these, these systems working very uh, effectively. So in other words, what I wanted to do was not just put my head in the sand and pretend like, like the world is fine and we'll just get through it and whatever. I wanted, to, I wanted to devote my life and on a mission for, you know, for not just my son, but for other people's kids and the future of our planet, for your future, for your kid's future, um, for whoever's listening, you know, future, that, that one person or, or several group of people coming together can make a huge impact and a huge difference. So that's when um, I, I really came up with this idea for, for Regen Villages, inspired by the, 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 the uh, decathlon competition. And this one question that I asked the professors about the smart house inside of a dumb neighborhood. And so right then and there, it was born because these professors at Stanford gave me design empathy. They looked in my eyes and they said, we believe in you. We believe in this idea. We believe that this is a good idea, a great idea. And moreover, we believe that, that once you start to do the math on it, that it probably does make sense to make some kind eventually of a spinoff company from this and see how it could be elevated to to reach a point of to transact with the big funds and thereby being you know this lovely again circularity back to research grants and and other kinds of, of gifts to universities so that um, so that we are paying it forward for what for what's happening okay. from us so that's how it all kind of got born from that yeah okay so 
So your system of with the region villages, sort of like the villages themselves, are a circular system of feeding back uh, upon its own resources. Exactly.、Uh, I mean,、uh, it's it's what the world has to understand.、Um, you know, we we live in a world of silos. You know,、uh, you, you know, you you know because you you know the university campus that it's wonderful, it's incredible. But even across an engineering quad, the right hand doesn't even know that a left hand exists. Let alone that they're working on maybe similar or complementary things. So、um, Stanford a few years ago created a, a program called Catalyst, which is really fantastic because it enables、um, groups of masters, you know,、um, uh, PhD candidates, postdocs, whatever it is, to come together, professors to come together, and and do these projects that are cross quad, right? And of course, that you know, if you're doing an engineering pro- project, that computer science would be engaged, that、uh, that Stanford Earth would be engaged, that that the business school could be engaged. In other words, it's、uh, there's no reason why that there shouldn't be this full stack approach. So, and in in, in many ways, Regen Villages represents that catalyst. It represents that full stack approach, not only for university breaking university silos, but most of all. Uh, industrial silos, you know. For instance, that a, there's no reason why you know water pumps、uh, shouldn't be able to communicate with you know the the、uh, microgrid powering them, and and where they understand each other's relationship to each other. Yeah. So that's really the 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 idea behind、um, the integration and the, the circularity back to campuses. Okay, then talking about breaking silos,、uh, I think this moves us to the topic of、uh, village OS, which is、uh, the OS that、uh, Region Villages is based on, and which also sort of uses artificial techno-、uh, intelligence, if I understood it correctly, to learn from its environment and share it with other、uh, villages around the world. So, can you explain a bit about village OS?、Uh, why is it important? And、uh, I will come back a bit later to the topic of barriers.、Uh, And they're breaking down with a、uh, village OS. Sure.、Um, yeah. I mean, you know, basically, when when I started the the research initiative,、um, both on campus and off campus, you know, at Stanford,、um, roughly two thousand twelve, thirteen, the companies that we were talking to, these big companies with power, water, waste, food, you know, these kinds of things.、Um, Infrastructure, whatever they they had systems, but the systems did not have open APIs, application program interfaces.、Um, they were talking about building them, but they weren't there yet. But I already had in my mind having a a substrate of a of a village OS that could be agnostic and could accept the the information coming in and going out. To these systems, in a way that that these companies would find incredibly rewarding、uh, and beneficial, because they, of course, they could not only learn from 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 the data across those systems, but they could also、um, see how there's a business model in these turnkey neighborhoods, turnkey communities, with all of these facilities、um, being connected to each other. So, in other words, that they become like a favored vendor in a way,、uh, because they're there early and participating. So, 
that's where we started this concept of 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 the the um, data model for architecting the data model. But we really didn't start coding until about 2017, and that was because uh, because I'd come from a software background, right? I come from 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 developing you know software, and so I people have said to me before that that I am sort of my my skill set really is is in see is connecting the dots and and taking previously non-integrated systems and integrating them and and where there is a new business model from that right so we wait till 2017 until those companies those big companies matured their APIs there was no reason to start to code and create something that you you know that you you would have to force them to try to buy into. Instead, you wait for them to do their APIs. We gain you know a certain amount of understanding and uh, and and position on that, and then we started coding you know in earnest in 2017. And and then since then we've you know we've created a model that's incredibly elegant and agnostic, and and is capable of of looking at the complexity of neighborhood infrastructure, food, water, energy, waste to resource management, passive home, smart home, if you will, connectivity, um, external services to mobility, to a curriculum, healthcare, a lot of things happening, you know, in, in just huge troves of data on a daily basis, where we also understood that machine learning was has been and continues to mature to such a point where where we could then sort of task out these data points to learn and improve optimize and or mitigate right and um, and moreover to then allow us the ability not just in monitoring things and having dashboards not to say that that's bad but you want to move past that where we could actually get to the point of of actuating and and controlling for these things happening um, in in the community, and then beyond that, from a Bucky Fuller perspective, or now uh, contemporarily um, Elon Musk, that Tesla, that these neighborhoods could communicate with each other across the cloud and learn and improve based on where they are in climate zones. So border-free data that is that is related to climate urgency. And, and, that, and I think the most beautiful thing to say about the Village OS is that it is evolving. It is, is intended to continue to evolve and improve and mitigate. So it's, it's never done. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, a really exciting opportunity, especially because we understand that every day there's going to be new modules, new technologies, whether it's power, water, waste, food, new kinds of farming robotics. We have a, a software stack now that's completely capable of welcoming those systems in and um, including them into that data mix. So that's the, the overarching concept behind the Village OS software. Okay, so the Village OS software is capable of taking in new technologies, if I understood correctly. Yeah, I mean that's 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 the idea. Is it's an it's a it's a constant um, optimization 
simulation, result-driven software stack, okay. which means that you can introduce new systems virtually, right? Yeah. You don't have to actually physically implement them. You can virtually drop them in to like a SimCity environment. And, and that's really the basis of our software, that it's generative and, and that it, it, the, the use of the software is to change the bloody zoning and planning rules. Okay, uh, number one, because right now um, it's not a matter of science, technology, or physics to build these neighborhoods quickly, right? Yeah. That really what it comes down to, it's a matter of policy and money. And when, the, when all the stars are aligned, and we've seen this happen around the world, when all the stars are aligned, these kinds of new build communities can go up really quickly, like within, you know, two years or so, you could see a four or 500 home community go up and be finished within three years, two to three years, something like that. Finished move-in, I mean, done. Now, for a lot of planners and governments around the world, I mean, that's like bending time-space continuums because they see things in, through the lens of decades. It takes a decade to get community approval. It takes a decade to get planning conditions or zoning conditions changed. And meanwhile, there's an urgent housing crisis on Earth, a billion or, or more uh, shortage of houses. And, and we can't keep building the same kind of subdivisions. We know that already, that are paving over farmland. Coming to the question of governmental uh, legal system and the governmental system in general, such as the zoning laws. So I think um, in a previous interview, you said those zoning laws are often established centuries earlier by mostly white men. And then, so how do you see your village OS overcoming them? So I, I know you talk, you just uh, talk about uh, those zoning laws being a barrier to, uh, us, um, revamping the model of subdivisions. So how do you see your village OS uh, overcoming those barriers? Well, look, before there was an Uber and a Lyft, okay, you had to call a taxi or rent a car. Yes. Or buy a car or take a bus or a train or whatever it is. You know, there, there was no, software resource driven you know kind of of application to to reinvent that and there were all of these hurdles that uber and lyft had to get through and still get through in terms of the the folks who drive taxis and who have to spend a lot of money getting a medallion uh, that proves that they are licensed and safe and all that stuff I mean, a cabbie in, in London, for instance, has to study for, I think, two or three years, has to know all of the roads by heart in London uh, to, be, to be able to get a, a cab license. And then all of a sudden, you know, some person with a Prius comes along, you know, and gets this ability to, to eat this person's lunch. So what happened? How, how were they able to do that? Um, Airbnb in a very similar way. Before, when you needed to go to say stay in a city, you you really only had a couple of choices. Either you knew somebody there that you could you could crash on their their couch or in their you know spare room, or you had to get a hotel. You know what I mean? That were a hostel. There, there was no there was no uh, resource driven app for that. So what does it take for a software stack to be able to leapfrog and and create a new overlay of rules and regulations? that makes the old rules kind of obsolete in a lot of ways. So there are driving forces now behind this. Um, one, 
is the fact that there's a host of generative software products coming from big companies like Alphabet. You know, they have a product called from Sidewalk Labs called Delve. This is you know machine learning to design cities. You know, <laughs> like here's a city block. Here's the here's the the GIS data on that block, and and then here are uh, ten thousand permutations of buildings that the software just can throw out, right? And then it allows the 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 stakeholders, the the developer, the landowner, the government, the local community around that building to kind of swipe through like Tinder, you know, their their choices for you know, for, for what can go in that spot. And then they, they take that and they go to the next level uh, of fidelity and the next level of fidelity. So basically within the, 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 the scope of maybe a few weeks or a couple of months without having to hire architects, engineers, civil planners, you know, consultants, just in this virtual sandbox, the SimCity sandbox, they can get, you know, the approval for that kind of building in that kind of space. That's huge. That's a, that is a sea change again and a renaissance for planning conditions. And, and Autodesk um, has a platform as well you know, for this. The um, Esri also has a platform for this. It's a big, huge, you know, um, multi-decade, fantastic company, Esri, in terms of place and data. And and um, and so, in other words, that there's a already an industrial, and I mean behemoth investment in this kind of leapfrog software for for plant, changing planning conditions. The other side of it is that's in favor of RO Village OS is that now there are very very strict guidelines coming from the EU. Let's say because we're a Dutch holding company, right? The EU has recently, within the last uh, few weeks has changed the rules for fund managers. Big funds can no longer call their fund green or eco or sustainable or ESG, SDG, whatever, if they don't actually check off all of those boxes, right? And there's not a lot of business plans like ours in the world that have almost all the 17 SDGs under one umbrella that we can design that way, build that way, track that way, and, um, and continuously deliver the, um, that, those metrics to those stakeholders, right? So the, all of that is, are these forces. Joined in that, you know, so the big funds are, 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 are pinched right now to do these things. The software side is, is proving these things out, okay? Then the other side really, um, you know, uh, has to do with, you know, the, the demand side, you know, that there's a huge demand from families who want to live like this. They want to live in these kinds of communities. They, they want to, they want to, um, use their capital to invest for themselves, for their kids, their grandkids, et cetera, in these kinds of communities. And then the fourth, you know, peg in the stool is the prefab constructors. The prefab constructors, we're talking about assembly line industrial players who are creating volumetric or component homes using passive circular building materials, right? Um, the 3D printing extrusion 
market, which is now coming to, 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 to life. It's maturing. It's still nascent, but it's coming. These are, these, in other words, you have to look at all the indicators. You don't have to be much of a futurist to see where all of this is really going to go. So within the next few years, governments are going to be um, provided a new digital set of rules that they can very easily check off and allow for the fast track development in the right way of these kinds of neighborhoods in balance with open space. So it's not just paving over farmland. And that's our sweet spot with our Village OS um, because we concern ourselves with the non-built area. That's not something you know, developers are interested in for the most part, unless you're talking about a golf course, right? Or a ski area. And we, we replace the golf course and the ski area with the amenities of critical life support systems. Sounds really fantastic. But uh, so my question is, uh, Village OS sort of binds all the technology together and makes it sort of like in a, in a nice package for everyone to use. Um, but since you talk about 3D printing, um, prefab homes, so all the technology, and you also talk about the housing crisis currently with uh, more than 1 billion homes that are needed to uh, sustain a living. So all the technology and the village OS itself makes like uh, eco-villages or region uh, eco-villages very, very expensive. However, um, you say that uh, this these kind of communities, these uh, eco-villages will render uh, using your quote here, no longer uh, housing no longer as a privilege but as a right. So can you explain how a region village is something very very something very high tech and uh, very expensive? How does that solve the problem uh, um, for housing with for people with low income in different countries? Yeah, it's a great question. So so um, I'm inspired in, in many ways by at, at Stanford by what's called the D School, the Design School, um, and they have as part of the D School this group called Design for Extreme Affordability, where they um, are given a task, they're given some expensive thing uh, in the world that is quite urgent and, and necessary, and their task is to break it down to its most critical human need of how it's, what this thing is supposed to actually do for, for, for humans, for people or planet, and then come up with a solution that is fractional, to the cost of the the let's say the full blown version of that, uh, you know, no, it's doing same or similar things. So I'm inspired by that. Okay, so and also by Elon Musk, I'm a total fanboy of this idea of of you know you, you start with the Roadster, you go to the Model S, you know, you've got the Y, then the Model Three, you know, the the all the different kind of of, of interpretations where eventually you could see this coming down in cost to, to sort of the Tata version. You know what I mean? Like this like yeah. very inexpensive electric vehicle. And so our goal with Regen Villages is very much to, to be uh, a global south-oriented expression of these modern eco-village interpretations, where especially with 3D extrusion of earthen building materials, especially uh, like hemp, crete, and 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 bamboo, crete, and other kinds of you know earthen um, uh, building materials can be extruded through these systems, and within a matter of a few weeks, you can literally print a three four hundred home neighborhood, and and, um, and that's based on preliminarily doing the the regenerative permaculture infrastructure, 
so so that when the monsoon does come, you know, the land that has been denuded for so many, you know, eons, all of a sudden comes back to life. And we've seen this time and time again around the planet, that it doesn't actually take long at all to, to be restorative in your practices, okay? So it's actually pretty low-tech, as a matter of fact. And so what we can do is we can take what we're doing in Norway and Netherlands and UK and US, Canada, et cetera, and we can start to really apply this model, the Village OS, to design for extreme affordability. So then you have, you know, the regenerative systems that are in symbiosis with the built environment. And most importantly, that these communities have what they need to, to, to get by and survive and thrive. And then as what's beautiful about these designs, by the way, is that as time goes by, they get better. It's like fine wine. They just, they improve, they, they, they blossom, they fruit. When they blossom and fruit and you have food forests, what happens is you get these wildlife corridors. You get these, these transiting birds and, and animals who bring um, heirloom and pioneer growth. So in other words, things that weren't planted there came from the scat of another animal, and that's nature. And all of a sudden, that starts to take root and grow and be indigenous to this area. And, and it's, it's life-affirming. Hey, you walk out, and, and every day you just see your, your community is, is just getting kind of bushier and, and more blossomy and more fruity and, and, and delicious and just bursting with flavors, right? And that makes people feel safe and healthy. And, and, and at the same time, when you feel safe and healthy because you're surrounded by abundant surplus, you start to, it triggers generosity. It triggers compassion and altruism and all these things, which then release dopamine, oxytocin, and all of these lovely chemicals in our brains that just make us want to do better and do, do more, more of these kinds of things for, for, for people and planet. So in any case, that's, uh, that's our, our, our driving goal is, is to bring this to the global south in a way that governments, especially around the world, understand that this is actually a very small investment to make in these kinds of new build communities because in the long run, they reduce burdens on government. They reduce burdens on the, the, the draw to, to these people going to the cities. They reduce the burdens on healthcare systems. They broker peaceful, happy places. These are all what we call these long-term positive externalities. And we just finished a research initiative with Duke University that shows what it will look like to live in a regen village 50 years later in terms of not only how great and happy everybody living in the neighborhood is, but the, the positive goodwill radius, which is typically about 25 kilometers goodwill radius around a single eco-village community. That's a, that's a big goodwill radius, if you think about it. So if you start building these lily pads, <laughs> right, of interconnected, self-sustaining, thriving, flourishing, blossoming places, their, their, the ripple effect of positive goodwill reduces burdens across the board. 
this is urgent. This is this is like you know this is not a pitch. This is an absolute urgent call to action that we do this, and that's the reason why behind the Village OS. That's the reason behind Regen Villages. It's the whole concept of fast track planning and prefab and 3D construction. We need to do it faster. We have to be able to go from concept to move in within two years for these kinds of communities. And then we can really start to affect positive change around the world. Okay, so you, you're talking about speed here with、uh, environment. Uh, so you were planning to build seventy-seven thousand homes in twenty-two countries by twenty twenty-four.、Uh, That was ambitious. So how how is pro- progress so far, and、uh, do you think it's enough、uh, at, at this rate? Well, you know that it's a it's one of those wonderful、uh, proclamations. I'm sure that's hit many entrepreneurs in the head like a brick、uh, many times in their lives.、Um, it was a it was a really ambitious, optimistic thought. You know, back in two thousand sixteen. You know, with the kind of momentum we were feeling from from the industrial players and from some of the funds we had been talking to, and and honestly, the status quo is so strong. It's so strong in the construction industry, the material industry, in the planning. Those are the folks, by the way, who set the planning rules, right, and the conditions. So there's a nice little tight cabal there that、um, that doesn't want innovation. They want it on their own terms, right? So,、uh, so basically, we're, you know, we we are doing our very best right now to get the first pilot communities off the ground, and we feel that once we prove out even the first pilot community, that we get get it built and we get it done,、um, and we're able to to do this on existing farmland, so changing the rules and zoning, also to get it built within three years. Uh, and then be able to start to apply those metrics of positive goodwill. That this will be essentially a self-fulfilling prophecy. And like I mentioned earlier to you about that four-prong stool, that the three of those prongs are really industrial players. They're landowners, they're they're government, they're、um, funds, they're these constructors doing prefab work. So there's. There's there's going to be more and more an awakening to this, and and so、um, will it be enough? You know, quite honestly, we need to start, right? So there's only one way to fix things, and that's to to grab a tool belt and head out and start doing it, right? For sure, you know, our thesis has come true, okay, because. Seven eight years ago, we predicted that something would happen to make cities feel less safe, and that people would want to start to move from cities back to the countryside. I was told by many people that politely that I was misguided, that the trend to cities was so strong that it could never be broken, and yet all the climate data is indicating that these coastal megacities are in the direct bullseye of collapse. And that there's not much we're going to do to retrofit and work our way out of these 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 global uh, you know uh, coastal megacities. So again, you know, a trend is a shiny object dangling you know in the distance. And now what we're seeing is because of this exodus from cities and this PTSD because of COVID, right? That、um, people want more than ever to live. In an agrohood, 
there, um, we've seen that the globalized distribution matrices can be very easily disrupted, you know, whether it's hoarding or whether it's a, a container ship being stuck in the Suez Canal, all of a sudden, you know, the shelves go bare. And you don't need many uh, experience of that when you go to the supermarket and you see that things aren't there that you want or need to start to realize that, that you better start doing these things yourself. But people coming from cities have no skills for this. So that's why we need to create these turnkey communities that enable them to be an urbanite, but live in the countryside, enjoy these amenities, be the digital nomads that they want to be to a certain extent, or, or digital workers, et cetera, create new economic models from living in these places. And, and we, have to, we have to make a start. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Um, personally, for me, I would definitely love to live in a region eco village when I grow up. But, Thank you. Um, yeah, it sounds super interesting. And, but like, I, I think there might be skeptics who might be thinking that this, this is too good to be true. So are there any drawbacks or are there really any drawbacks to region uh, villages? Well, look, you know, I like to say often that there's no such thing as utopia. There isn't, okay? Um, human nature, by default, you know, has these bell curves. You know, we go through these moments where we feel amazing, generous, and gratitude, happy, all that. And then we go down, down sine wave, and we feel depressed, downtrodden, aggressive, angry. All of those things happen in the context of a single hour for some people or a day or a week, whatever. So in other words, happiness is elusive. Flourishing is actually a little bit less elusive because we know to a certain extent that there are circumstances you can create that makes for, you know, for flourishing. So, you know, what we have to do is, um, is look at the, you know, the best in people and the best in systems and the best in capabilities and, and strive, isn't it? We have to strive every day, okay? All we're trying to do is say, look, you can go back to the countryside and don't have to be a farmer, right? That there's a managed service infrastructure for that. You pay an association fee and those amenities are covered. If you want to contribute and work in the, in the, in the community gardens and the village and et cetera, then we'll, we will ledger that and we'll reduce your monthly association fee based on whatever tasks that you or your family contribute, right? So it's really an eco-village on your own terms in that regard. We, we're trying to solve for what where these intentional communities typically fall in on themselves, which is one person, one vote, or one family, one vote, where they, they try to create these democracies that don't really work because there's always going to be these psychological uh, personality types that that want to foment chaos or discord, right? And and whereas the average subdivision community that doesn't happen because people move in, they buy a house, they rent a house, they have a management company that they have a you know kind of a Ten Commandments things that they sign that they're willing to abide by whatever it is. Um, so uh, you know, the answer to your question is that. It's chaos theory, man. It's chaos theory. We don't really know how exactly people are going to interact with each other. You may be next door neighbor to somebody that you hate, 
but best become best of friends with somebody who lives across you know the garden from you and we can't control for that we cannot socially engineer to such a, a place and and even if we did there's no saying that you're at some point going to switch you know alliances allegiance with friends in a community yeah. um so the point though is that we can do our best to answer for your basic human needs and try to address the best we possibly can social affordability and inclusion into these communities so that we are we are really looking at solving for these much broader issues and problems and and that ought to give people a sense of tranquility and and that's and that's that's a lovely thing to strive for okay what we call homeostasis you know that place where you are when you've eaten a delicious meal you've had a fantastic dessert maybe you've had a glass of wine or or beer or whatever it is and you're with good friends and you just there's you you don't you don't need anything else in that moment you're not hungry you're not thirsty you're not tired you you have you know you're just in balance and that's not easy to get to <laughs> Uh, but we try to we strive for that. Perfect. So sounds really fantastic. And so, sorry, just two final quick questions. So there's your uh, region eco villages as a solution to our current living situations. However, there are also various other environmental solutions such as uh, vertical farming in cities, as well as um, some scientists or some people even propose to continue to use nuclear power as a solution um, to combustible uh, energy. So. Uh, what do you uh, so? How do you think region villages compare to those other solutions? And uh, do you think there are some benefits to those other solutions as well? Well, um, in terms of vertical farming, you know, we we of course are, are are intending to take the best in class aquaponic, aeroponic, controlled environment systems into our region villages communities because this gives you this year round nutritional supplement. Our, our intent is to add these modules to those systems uh, that would be, you know, again, striving for symbiosis that you've got your chicken coops, you've got your light dairy, you know, the sheep and goat and, and the occasional cow wandering around. The, the barns are also connected there because then you get, you get a certain amount of BTUs from those animals for the greenhouse uh, heat. Um, to combine that with vermiculture, you know, to, to, uh, to digest waste, food and animal waste, but then that turns into food for the chickens and the fish and the other small animals. So you get full circularity there. And then there's other, you know, pieces and components, whether it's mushrooms or other art artisanal ingredients, so that one building or a structure of building with these adjoining modules is able to produce tons of food year-round and delicious, bioavailable, fresh food. Um, so that's we're totally, you know, bullish on that. I'm not so bullish necessarily on just leafy greens and microgreens coming from those those vertical systems. And in urban areas, um, uh, you know, in particular, that you know, we have to be we have to be cognizant that that these sort of clean room hydroponic systems, I don't feel like are the best way forward. I haven't seen it yet that it makes me convinced that's the best way forward. And especially what it's producing is not really capable of sustaining a diverse menu that we've seen. 
it's a piece of a puzzle. It's not the it's not the whole puzzle. So I'm more interested in like the work that like the folks have done in um, in Brooklyn in, in in New York on on taking over you know, rooftop uh, across the city and and laying soil down and doing you know beautiful diverse uh, organic farming and gardens on those rooftops. And there's, there's, there's right there is a, you know, uh, uh, an opportunity to create these biodiverse things. So that's on that side on, on, on nuclear power, you know, Einstein said famously paraphrasing, you know, it's a hell of a way to make steam, you know, meaning, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, when you look at, at, at what it does, of course, it's great. You know, in, in fact, that you, you're getting what seems to be, be quote unquote, free energy from, you know, f- you know, from, you know, the, the generation of the steam into those turbines. But the, the, there is a lot of negative externalities associated with, with those systems and a tremendous amount of cost in building, you know, these systems. Um, I, I think at some point, you know, that, you know, you can go from fission to fusion. And, you know, if you're able to take, especially those, the, the nuclear waste that exists already on Earth and convert that into something, I think that's really interesting. I've seen some of these ideas about taking small amounts of this nuclear waste from, from, from these existing plants and enclosing it in kind of like a diamond battery that can last for a thousand years. And I think that's super interesting. I think those are the kinds of plays that need to happen in terms of st- on the storage side for, uh, for, for, for recycling in a circular way that the, those things. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm just really bullish on, on whatever's coming in terms of energy storage because this is going to be a huge tipping point, right? When you have solar arrays and wind and other kinds of, of, of diverse power generation, and all of a sudden you can store it and release it in an incredibly cost-effective, lossless manner, and store it for long periods of time, especially in a very cheap way, in a clean way, right? That is going to overnight, and I mean overnight, change the game when it comes to these small community microgrids. Literally, maybe not, maybe they're not cutting the cord to the district scale utilities, but they're becoming themselves power plants. I really get excited about the idea of neighborhoods contributing to the grids and reducing burdens on the grids rather than, you know, looking at them drawing power. So that's, those are, those are my takes on, on those things. You know, I, I want to have design empathy. I want to be open-minded uh, and look at lots of different things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, we're, we're, we're always, that's also the beauty of Regen Villages is the fact that we're not pigeonholed into one specific silo or multiple silo technology platforms. You know, whether it's well, from a microgrid perspective, there's Schneider Electric, there's Siemens, there's Bosch, LG, Panasonic. I mean, there's some big players out there either in this field or, or hopping into this field. So um, it's just a matter of, you know, us looking for the best in class and, and that, you know, can communicate with our village OS. And then, you know, from there we can, we can take it further. 
Okay. But um, yeah. Yeah, I, I I definitely see that. So just take the best of everything. Yeah, take the best of everything, and 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 again, you know, my my background is is not reinventing the wheel. My background is in has always been, you know, coming from a video game uh, design background, for instance. You know, a new uh, you know console comes out. I don't care who it's from, Sony or or Nintendo or 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 Sega or Atari, whoever it is. You know, I would be excited about it, but I wouldn't do anything for it. I wouldn't design for it. I would I would wait to see the market uptake. I would wait to see you know what the SDKs look like. You know, I'd wait to see you know what what the rules and regulations were and are for those for those games you know how, how much freedom we would have what our what our royalty would be in other words you wait till it matures and then you say okay now it's it looks like the right time to to bring in some interesting concepts and innovate okay i see and so one final question is what messages or advice would you like to leave uh, with our listeners well, the assumption is listeners are mostly um, students, faculty, uh, others. Um, the the message really is that one person or small group of people can make a huge positive impact for the planet and for humanity, and that even though what it seems like is uh, and are daunting circumstances in terms of of climate, in terms of now health because of COVID, in terms of brittle infrastructure and collapse, in terms of money, lack of there too, et cetera, that, you know, just believe in yourself, that you can, you can actually come up with an idea and focus on it and, and make a huge difference. And I relate this to this idea that I've seen more and more over, over the last few years, especially of the sort of individuals who, like for instance, in Southern India, the stories of this sort of these people, like one guy, for instance, who, who went out and for, for 29 years, he went to this completely barren, desertified landscape because it was denuded of all of its trees and, and timber and, and just went into to collapse. And, and methodically, one person in 29 years, every day, went out to plant trees. And 29 years later, there's something like, you know, uh, a 500 hectare area that is completely reforested. It's brought rain, the elephants came back, the tigers came back, the birds came back. It, it, it provided then water back to the aquifer for the village that he lives in. And so it started to restore and bring resources back to these places. We've seen also in southern India these communities coming together to carve out these 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 berms and these swells for capturing monsoon and doing it in the right way. You know where 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 the hillsides are. And after one monsoon, after one rainy season, the aquifers were restored sufficient enough to grow rice. For sufficient enough to 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 graze, and all of a sudden, those same people typically who had to leave the village during the dry season to go find work in the cities didn't have to leave, which meant that their kids could stay in school, 
these stories bring tears to my eyes because it's not a matter of tech. It's a matter of taking one step or even a half a step towards Mother Earth, and she will literally throw her arms around us. And that is what I want to import, impart to, to the folks listening. Um, also, of course, if people happen to be connected to, to family offices and, and family wealth and you know, know of people who might be interested in investing in Regen Villages, we're always looking for good, qualified impact investors because we're definitely on a mission and we're going to get this done. So thanks for that. No, thank you for coming on to the show. And uh, yeah, I again, thank you so much. And it was a very, very interesting episode and personally very excited for what your project has in store for us. And yeah, I want you to finish off with that. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, it was so, super interesting. Yeah, that's great. All right. Have a wonderful day. You too. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you everyone who tuned in to listen. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did during the interview. If you liked this episode, learned something, or just want to help out a bunch of students, please leave a review, write a comment, and share this on social media. If you are listening to this on YouTube, please subscribe and write to us in the comments. All the books and other resources recommended by the interviewee are in the podcast description slash video description depending on your platform. And depending on when you see this, you might be able to use our affiliate link to purchase them. The Marianopolis Addendum podcast is actively seeking local sponsors here in Montreal. So if you are interested, please contact us at the email linked in the description. All the profit generated by this podcast will go back to fund our club's activity. If we have any surplus, they will be donated at the end of every month to a local charity. This episode was edited by Lucy Ann. And the artwork is done by Camilla Huang. The producers and guests associated with this episode may express their opinion, but this podcast does not support any political parties. We only aim to bring different perspectives on different issues through the free exchange of opinions and ideas. We look forward to seeing you at our next broadcast. Cheers!